जय शिवाय लेट्स टुडे टॉक अबाउट वेदांता सो आई डिसाइडेड टू कीप ऑन मेकिंग वीडियोज अबाउट वेदांता गोइंग फॉरवर्ड सो दैट देर इज अ लॉट ऑफ कन्फ्यूजन एंड आई गेट लॉट ऑफ क्वेश्चन अबाउट अद्वैता दिस एंड दैट एंड it seems like uh, just because people do not understand the core of it from where it originates where it starts and all that there is still a lot of confusion in understanding this one scripture vedanta and it is the most famous scripture and uh, i thought let's me start teaching it let's see how far it goes so vedanta first of all it's a very very old scripture very old scripture ancient scripture thousands and thousands of years of old scripture and uh, it is also called as uttar mimamsa the word mimamsa means trying to figure out a thing if we have to understand in a very easy language we can say when scientists are doing their experiments they are experimenting on something then they are reaching a conclusion then they are trying to you know re-experiment on this and finally they will figure out that thing right so that kind of a process that process of figuring out the truth or proving something that process is called as mimamsa and it involves perceive perception it involves study it, it it involves actually doing some mental analysis thinking about it right so this is what's called all called as mimamsa so in total the scripture mimamsa is the huge and the largest biggest of all scriptures so it has like 20 chapters in total so the first 16 chapter are called as purva mimamsa purva means that which happened first that which was written first okay so it's called as purvamimamsa the last four chapters after the 16 chapters last four chapters are called as uttarmimamsa or that which was lit, written afterwards so it's called as uttarmimamsa so vedanta is the name another name given for uttarmimamsa okay and it contains four chapters there are total 555 highly codified sutras in it now comes another thing does vedanta means ved plus anta the way you divide words dissect the words in hindi or in sanskrit ved plus anta means end of vedas everybody thinks that's what vedanta that is how the word meaning wordly meaning of vedanta is 
end of Vedanta. End of Vedas is Vedanta. No, it's not. It's wrong. So there is another word, word called as Siddhanta. Siddhant means principle. In English, Siddhanta means principle. So in the word Vedanta, the word Antha has been taken from the word Siddhanta. That which has become a principle. So in that way, Vedas. Now here, there is nothing of Vedas in Vedanta. Directly. You won't find the sutras of Rig Veda or Yajur Veda or Atharva Veda or other Vedas into the Vedanta. No. But what is the main topic of discussion? What is the main thing of main character of Vedas, all the Vedas? What is the main thing that we discuss in Vedas? It's Brahma, Paramatma that you can call, call him Paramatma. So it's Brahma, right? So exactly in the same way, Vedanta, when we say Veda, in the word Vedanta, actually means Brahma, that it is about Brahma, that it is about Paramatma. So it is about, mainly about Brahma. But can we say that it's only about Brahma and it's all not about anything else? Yes, it is about everything else too. All the other things has to be discussed in reference to Brahma. Okay? So that which is not, if you want to discuss or try to find out that which is not, you have to figure out that which it is not exactly in reference to it. For example, if you have to, if I ask you what is sweet, then the only way you can explain me through words is by telling me that it's not bitter, it's not salty, it's not sour, it's not this, it's not this, what it is. So exactly in the same way, Vedanta has three topic, topics. It's also based on Trinity, Trinity of Prakriti, all that is jada, means not conscious. Jada means not conscious. Jada does not mean unconscious. <laughs> they are two, two different things. So be very specific in, because it will change your understanding. When you create a theory or a concept about it, it will change it. So be very clear about it that jada means prakriti. This whole creation. Okay. And so jada means all that is not conscious. That is first thing. Second thing is atma or jiva. In Vedanta, atma is referred to as jiva. And third thing is paramatma, supreme divine. Supreme Divine is referred to as 
ब्रह्म इन वेदांता ओके इन ऑल द उपनिषद एज वेल इट इज सुप्रीम ब्रह्म सुप्रीम डिवाइन और परमात्मा इज रेफर टू एज ब्रह्म ओनली दैट इज वाई वेदांता इज ऑल्सो कॉल्ड एज ब्रह्म सूत्राज ओके वेन एवर पीपल रोट अदर ऋषीज एंड एवरीबडी देव एन दे रोट कमेंट्रीज अबाउट वेदांता दे कॉल्ड इट ब्रह्म सूत्राज एंड दे क्लियरली मैंशन दो आर ट्राइंग टू अंडरस्टैंड ब्रह्म सूत्राज मस्ट रीड ऑल इलेवन उपनिषद बिफोर गोइंग थ्रू दिस वन बिफोर गोइंग थ्रू वेदांता वी शुड रीड ऑल इलेवन उपनिषद बट एनी वेज फॉर सीकर्स इट्स अ डिफरेंट स्टोरी सीकर्स कैन कम फ्रॉम एनी राउट राइट योग द ज्ञान ऑफ योग हैपन्स थ्रू योग एज वेल so you don't have to walk a straight path you can walk from here and there in a spiral way so this is how it is this is what vedanta is it is about trinity now when it comes to writing the commentary the originally the veda who who wrote vedanta was maharshi vedvyas maharshi vedvyas also wrote mahabharata and his another name maharshi vedvyas's another name was badrayan so he wrote mahabharata he wrote vedanta and then later on commentary was written by so many other maharshis so if sutras are in sanskrit the commentary has to be in sanskrit only if you are writing commentary in any other language then it is not considered as a primary commentary at all that's why then lot of people sanskrit was not being taught so widely in the indian schools or in other asian schools sanskrit was dropped out from the syllabus in lot of schools so then slowly and slowly by and by people couldn't read it and that's when people started writing hindi commentary or other languages commentary other regional languages commentary using the sanskrit commentary and then english became so widely known right and uh, even people from other cultures other part of the world wanted to you know use this knowledge and expand this knowledge and take it to their countries and their people in the language they they can understand so then on that in using that hindi commentary not the sanskrit one using that hindi commentary english commentaries were written and using that english commentary commentary in french spanish portuguese and i don't know how however many languages they have been all the worldwide languages the commentaries have written now you need to understand and be very mindful of this fact that whenever you are reading an english commentary of something it is it is bound to have the error of perception why perhaps the english commentary may have been written by somebody who is not born and brought up in india and is not so well versed or embedded deep within the culture and it brings a 
difference in perception, how you perceive things. An Indian mother may be teaching a child how to fast. Okay, how to, how to observe a fasting, how not to eat on some days. And it's perfectly valid in our culture to teach kids how to fast since childhood. When they are like 7-8 years old and they are, they are ready and they can do it, then we teach them these kind of things. And then we allow them to stay hungry for a certain period of time. For a day, for once in a day, like skipping one meal or skipping both of them. And then there are 9 days fasting. So some kids like me and a lot of other kids, they'll stay They'll make a commitment, no all nine days, no food, no water. Or just water, only water for all nine days. So these things are normal in Indian culture. But if a foreigner looks from it, from outside, they may think of our parent as really very cruel and very bad parents. Why? They are starving their kids. <laughs> preparing our kids for starvation and now people pay a lot of money for health counseling where they are taught okay you live on juice for next 30 days <laughs> so you see when things come to the foreign cultures things may come from the science from the doctors from the psychologists the same thing and if a psychologist refers to you and says okay you are doing yoga next 30 days okay and yoga yoga and meditation is mandatory for you if they are prescribing it to you then you will understand it but when it is embedded into the culture it's not not that easy to accept okay so what i'm trying to say is that all those english translations will have error of perception as well as when one language to another language to another language when that kind of translation when translation happens that way then also things become polluted okay a lot of pollution happens, a lot of adulteration of the knowledge and information happens. And then we also have to remember about time. Society was one way 100 years back, right? Society was another way 300 years back. Society was very different 1000 years back. So when all those commentaries are being written, then they have time. Their examples are of the time when it is the from the culture around the writer, the person who is writing it, the author of it. He's picking up things from the society that is around, that he sees. And it may be different in one part of the world and another part of the world. So there are a lot of things that you need to keep in mind in understanding the concept of such truth or such scriptures which were originally written in Sanskrit. So either you, if you don't, if you want to save yourself from all kind of confusions, the hard, the, you know, <laughs> hard and hard but best way is to actually learn Sanskrit and then read the original Sanskrit commentary. Otherwise, go to a really serious scripture, Indian guru. Why I am saying Indian is, because today if I go to Japan, suppose, and I learn Japanese. I work very hard. I learn Japanese in the best possible way. I can actually, actually I may actually be able to exactly mimic their uh, accent, you know, in proper accent I would be speaking. I learn their different culture things, this, that, this, that. But it will take like 20, 25 years in my head 
for ideology to be changed. Can I ever become a true Japanese? By heart, by soul. Can I ever become a true Japanese? I may. But it may be something like 20-25 years. It may take. Or even more. Or it may never happen actually. So it is very hard to, because people have so much strong cultural identities and cultural belief systems. Okay. So you have to be mindful of what you are reading. What kind of commentary? Who wrote it? Where did that person, where, where was the bringing of that person? And uh, even if it is an English commentary, it's better if you read it from an Indian author. Okay? Because they understand the concept culture. Nobody has in India has to teach us about karma. We don't read books on karma. Two slaps from our parents and our ego comes down and we know what is karma. <laughs> that is how it is. Anyway, so let's come back to Vedanta. So these people wrote all the commentaries people were writing. And uh, Bodhyayan wrote a Sanskrit commentary, very nice, but we don't get it today. A lot of original Sanskrit commentaries were lost. And, or you can say they haven't been found yet. Both could be possible. And then finally, long ago, Adi Shankaracharya wrote a commentary on Vedanta. Adi Shankaracharya, when he wrote the commentary of Vedanta, he proposed an idea or a concept of Advaita. Where he is saying that Atma is not really very different from Paramatma. Okay. And Atma and Paramatma are one and the same. That is what he proposed as a concept to the people. But then again, it was his understanding. Is Vedanta really an Advaita? No. It's not. Advaita is a very famous commentary on Vedantra, Vedanta. But they are not the same thing. Advaita is not Vedanta. A lot of Advaitins call themselves Vedantins as well. No, it's not like that. Advaita is completely different. And when the, this Adi Guru Shankaracharya, when he proposed this thing, uh, Advaita theory that Paramatma and Atma are one or the Jiva and Brahma are one. Then it's like saying when, when we dissolve sugar into the water, then sugar and water are one. In a way they are. Right? There's no really no difference for anybody to be able to see that Sugar and water are not one right now. Yes, they are. Sugar is not visible into the water. It's just the water. And that's what he was proposing. The only thing is Brahma that remains. Atma is not very separate from him. 
So in a way it's right. But is it technically right? That sugar and water are one. Did sugar became water when it was, it was dissolved? No. Even though sugar is dissolved in water, in the water sugar is still exist as sweetness. If on the sweet water you do a chemistry experiment, then you will find that water is still a water, H2O is still there and sugar is remaining in its sweetness. It has dissolved but yet sugar is still sugar. So even though, though both of them merged together, both of them are separate entities in themselves. So that's how later those who did the commentary, a lot of people, a lot of rishis, great rishis, actually did the commentary on Advaita and they refuted Adi Shankaracharya's arguments about and very technically they refuted it. And to an extent, I found from my personal experience as well, the one who has merged into it, I also realized that the truth, the technicality of the things, is how Vedanta is, not how Advaita is. Yes, it is one of the way to look at the same Trinity, principle of Trinity. So, it's one of the ways. It can be perceived that way, right? Sugar has been melted and you can say sugar and water are one. So, in that way, it's in that context, in that much boundary, it is correct. But is it the whole truth? No, it is not. Whole truth is still is Vedanta. It's not the whole truth, but it is one way of looking at the whole truth. So in that way it is correct. Okay. So Vedanta and Advaita are not the same thing. Then later on, many people picked up uh, Advaita theory, Advaita concept. And then they came up with... Uh, Dvaita Dvaita, Dvaita and then Shuddha Dvaita, Vikra Dvaita and lot of other theories. So commentary over commentary over commentary over commentary over concept over the concept, concept over the concept. So deriving one concept from the other and it went on and on. <laughs> it can go on till infinity, doesn't matter. But the real scripture, Vedanta is not a Dvaita. Vedanta, Advaita is about Vedanta. Advaita is a commentary over Vedanta. Okay. Exactly in the same way that you cannot say data or data or metadata are the same thing. No, they are not. Data and metadata are not the same thing. Metadata is the information about the data. Exactly in the same way. Advaita is not Vedanta. Advaita is about Vedanta. It's a commentary over Vedanta. Right? And then all the other Dvaita and special dualism, non-dualism and I don't know how many, however many are there. But here we are not talking about, we will not learn, I am not teaching you Advaita. I am only teaching you Vedanta here. So we will stick to that in between sometimes we'll discuss why adi what adi shankaracharya wrote here what was adi shankaracharya's commentary so we will discuss in comparison but the main compa main commentary that we will stick to is of brahmamuni 
Brahmamuni wrote the commentary and it's, an, it's a Sanskrit commentary. So that is what we are going to learn from. We are not going to learn from any Hindi commentary or any other language commentary or anything else. We are only reading Sanskrit commentary here. So I am not going to read the Sanskrit sutras. I am just going to explain you the meaning and we will go on that way. Okay. So let's see. So Vedanta, the first sutra, Atha Brahma Jigyasa, it starts with that. So let's say it, it starts with a question actually or a statement you can say that who will have the desire to know Brahma? Brahma means divine supreme, Brahma means Paramatma. Some people can call him God, whatever you want, what, whichever word fits with, with you for that ultimate supreme power. Okay. So desire to know Brahma, who will have that? So Vedanta says that Brahma Muni, the commentary says that anybody who has gone through suffering, suffering of what kind of suffering here we are talking about. So it's rog, viyog and bhog. Rog means all kinds of diseases, physical and mental. Okay. Anybody who has seen diseases again and again, again and again, lots of diseases in the body, in the body of their own body, as well as in the body of their loved ones. So those who have gone through and seen that this body is perishable, One can be deceased and life can be lost to that. So, viyog. Viyog means separation. Separation not just from the loved ones or relatives or lovers or parents. Separation also from the fact that understanding that today you may have a house. Tomorrow you may not. Today you may have wealth. Tomorrow you may be separated from it. Today you may acquire something. Tomorrow you may lose it. Right? So viyog means separation. So rog means diseases, physical, mental, in yourself, in others. So that, that creates a suffering, right? So someone who has gone through that kind of a suffering and someone who has gone through the suffering that separation creates. Losing your wealth, losing your money, losing your loved ones, losing your parents, losing anything in life creates suffering. So someone who has gone through that. Then someone who has seen that today I may enjoy something. Tomorrow if I do not have it, I may not have it. Nothing is going to stay permanently. So someone who has seen that even bhoga, Bhoga means experience of something is just so temporary. Today I may feel someone's love or it may be there for me now today. Tomorrow there may, may not be so. Today I have somebody in my life. Tomorrow it may not be so. So every Bhoga comes to an end. Every Bhoga is going to 
ultimately creates suffering. The absence of good bhoga is a suffering. And the presence of bad bhoga. If somebody is suffering the jail, they definitely want to get out of jail. So they want to end that suffering. They might be having bhoga or experience of some other bad situation or circumstances. So presence and absence of good experience and bad experience is ultimately going to create a suffering. So Vedanta says anybody who has seen or experienced or have understood these three sufferings, have gone through these three sufferings, will reach another state where the wisdom happens. Two types of wisdoms. Wisdom of two types is created because of these three kinds of suffering. What is that two types of wisdom? Wisdom about two things. First one is everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Anitya. Anitya means that which is not eternal. Not going to stay for a long time. So whether they are your parents, whether they are your loved ones, whether it is your life or somebody else's life or you know your uh, status, your image, your wealth, your name, your fame, your youth, your body. Your loved ones, your love, your relationships. Nothing is going to last long. Nothing is going to last forever. So there is impermanence in everything. Anitya, non-eternal things. So everything is non-eternal. Or Anitya, this is one type of first wisdom that happens after suffering. Those three kinds of suffering. Second kind of wisdom that happens is that everything is nashur. Everything dissolves or is destroyed. It's only a matter of time. Your body will be going through. It will age, it will decay, it will be diseased and then it will die. Relationships, same thing. Love, that, that which you call love is same thing. So everything with human beings, with plants, with creation, the entire creation is nashur. It's not for forever. Everything has come to come to an end. It's just a cycle. Everything is going into a time period. It's a matter of time only that this comes to an end. Everything the way it is right now is going to end. That flower which you are very happy about right now is going to wither and die maybe by the end of the day. Whether it is your child or your parent or anything. Everything is destructible. Everything will be destroyed. So Nashwar Sansara. Sansara is Nashwar. Destroyed. It dissolves. It has an end to it. Everything has an end to it. Everything has an expiry to it. The day you create something, the day you acquire something, very strongly the day of 
date of separation or the date of end of that thing is printed on it. You just ignore. Out of ignorance, you just don't see it. Right? You don't want to see it. You don't want things to end the way they are now. Lot of things you do not want them to end. Right? But Sansara is Nashwar. Everything will come to an end. And nothing is eternal. Everything is impermanent. So this thing comes from those three kinds of suffering. Using this exact first sutra, exact same thing, Buddha, Gautam Buddha wrote the first three principles. Using Vedanta, Buddha wrote first three basic principles for people. That Sansara is suffering, life is suffering. He, the words and the meanings have been changed because maybe it was that kind of a time period uh, when Buddha was doing all this. But he didn't mean to say life is suffering. Yes, it is suffering in a way. When he wanted to say that, he was saying that rogue, viyog and bhog will create suffering in you. He's not saying life is suffering. It's just when you translate Pali into English or Sanskrit into English, it has it becomes just so diluted that it loses its real meaning. He wasn't saying life is suffering. He is saying that sansara is suffering. Means everybody will have rogue, means diseases at one point of time or other. Their loved ones will have that too, right? And everybody will go through viyog, means separation. Somebody's parents die. Somebody, sometimes loved ones walk away from you. Even if they are alive, they will leave you alone. They'll go away. And sometimes people die and then they leave you. Parents die, children die, relatives die, your lovers die or they may leave you. Just like that. So viyog exists in sansara, right? And then bhog exists in sansara. Something you might be, may be looking very pleasurable. The first piece of the chocolate cake may look like very pleasurable to you. 21st, 22nd or 21st piece of that very same chocolate cake is not going to be very pleasurable to you. You may puke out of after eating that. So, bhoga ultimately also results, no matter what you are experiencing, ultimately it will cause a, an aversion in you. Okay? So, it may be a good, great relationship that you might be enjoying, but someday it will create, if it doesn't go by your weight, if it, it, stay, it doesn't stay at the same intense level of the intensity, it will die. So, bhoga will ultimately, every experience comes to an end. So, and sansara is anitya, impermanent, impermanence is there, non-eternal things, this sansara, everything is non-eternal, everything will come to an end. Nashwar. So using these three Vedanta principles, Buddha wrote three basic principles of, in Pali, in Sanskrit, he wrote three basic principles for all the seekers. So that's how Buddhism, even Buddhism starts from these three statements. And it, they were taken from Vedanta because Vedanta happened long, long ago than when Buddha happened. So this is what you have to understand. So now...
Adi Shankaracharya. So this is the translation that I told you, meaning that I told you from the Brahma Muni. But uh, Adi Shankaracharya realized that when rogue viyog and bhog happens to people, means when they are suffering from some disease or suffering from uh, some uh, separation in life, somebody died in the family or somebody left somebody, that kind of separation. So if somebody is suffering from this separation or if somebody is suffering a particular kind of an experience in life, then usually people start going to temple or they start doing some dumb rituals. He saw that happening. So he realized that people are not going the jnana that should happen. Did not happen to lot of people. Instead, when the suffering was there, they started running towards temple, churches, mosques and this and that. And they wanted to just, just fix that problem. They were not looking. So he said that, okay, these three things are not going to create the enquiry from for Brahma or the desire to know Brahma is not going to be created in such people. Those who are running towards uh, temporary fixes and solutions and solution for their um, rogue viyog and bhog, they are not going to have that jnana which says, okay, nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent, non-eternal and everything is destructive. Everything will be destroyed one day or the other. So th that jnana is not going to happen to such people. So he thought, he made it even much more clear. He said, okay, so the people, those who have had bhoga, yoga and bhoga and roga and viyoga, those who have suffered, but they have done the shama and dhamma. Shama and dhamma means the Adi Shakracharya meant like what we have in yoga darshan, the yama and niyama, Although they are not exactly same, Yama Niyama is not e exactly same as Sham and Dham. But for now you can, we'll talk about that in a separate lecture. But here today you can understand it as that yes, those who have followed, practiced Yama in Niyama so much that Yama and Niyama has, has become their default nature. Only in them, the desire to know Brahma will arise. Those who have not done even Yama and Niyama, and if it has not become their default nature, in this lifetime, for them, talking about Brahma or God or Divine or Supreme Consciousness or whatever it is you want to call, is nothing but an intellectual entertainment. They might be just curious. It's one thing. Like how they say uh, in for YouTube these days, I heard a very interesting that to actually out of curiosity, to hit the subscribe button is one thing. And to actually subscribe to the jnana, to the guru, is totally different thing. <laughs> So you see, he made it clear that he didn't want those people to be reading the second sutra, the commentary of the second sutra. Next, further sutras. It's of no use. So anybody who hasn't 
practiced yama and niyama or anybody who hasn't practiced shama and dhamma, they very well stop right here. No need to read any further. <laughs> Why? It's of no use. You will not understand at all. Because the true desire to know Brahma hasn't happened in them. Will not happen in them. So for them, entire Vedanta is useless. No need to study it. And we do see a lot of, you know, spiritual, mental, spiritual, gymnast kind of people who will keep on doing. And, you know, theories after theories, discussion after discussion on each and every theory. Opinion about opinion and a lot of drama. But the true desire to know Brahma does not exist. And if not, it doesn't exist, then you very well stop wasting your time here. You can go watch movie or do anything else. No need to read Vedanta. No need to learn about Brahma because the true desire does not exist in them. Right? So he made it even more specific. So, but uh, again, Brahma Muni said that this is a little bit wrong. It's not right what Adi Shankaracharya wrote. He said that uh, the desire to know Brahma or the wisdom that Sansara is uh, anitya and uh, impermanent and nashwar, destructible. All this happens because of vairagya, dispassion, which is the net result, resultant of those three kinds of suffering. Those three kinds of suffering actually creates vairagya, dispassion in people. And that's when the wisdom arises. So in a vairagi, a wisdom may exist, but he may not be so much into yama niyama or shamadama. He may still from the surface, it may look like he's doing things and this and that, but internally he may be a vairagi. Now, from my personal experience also, I know that this is true. This is very much true. A vairagi may be living in life like any other worldly person, yet he or she may be completely dispassionate about the sansara. May have the wisdom that yes. But that is not to say that yama niyama does not exist at all in the practice and the person is completely violent. No. They do exist. But they may not have formally went through that yama niyama or shamadama kind of path in this lifetime. If they are already being born vairagi, what about those? So Brahma Muni refuted that argument. That not everybody in this lifetime is going to walk their journey from shamadama or the first step of the because a spiritual journey is for lifetimes. Many people are born here. They have already done a lot of tapas. Vairagi exists in them. In one way or the other. However much is the degree of the Vairagya. That much of the journey they are going to walk in this lifetime. So Vairagya is a very important key factor. If you do not understand about Vairagya. There is a video I have created that you can watch. 
Let's call something into the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali I created that where I gave you. If you do not understand Yama Niyama, there is a video and I think the title is Building the Solid Foundation for Your Kundalini. That explains about Yama and Niyama and all the five star principles that we have. So you can watch that. But yeah, what he, Brahma Muni was trying to say is that not everybody is going to walk their journey from this life, in this lifetime from the step one. Some may be walking that journey from step four or step five. Then what about those people? So holistically, it does not explain. Adi Shankaracharya's explanation wasn't holistic while the sutras in themselves are talking about holistic thing. And when they are talking about the whole thing, then it makes sense that yes, three suffering, a person has to go through all these three kind of sufferings, which will then create dispassion. And if and only if it has created dispassion, the jnana about anitya and anashwarta means impermanence, non-eternal and destruction is going to happen to them. That's when the desire to know that which is permanent, that which is Brahma, that which is Paramatma is going to arise in them. So just think about it. It seems simple, it's not. <laughs> and uh, it may seem very complicated, but it's actually very simple. <laughs> so let's keep this first lecture to the, up till this here and then we will discuss other things and we'll move on further. Namaste. Jai Shiva.